all glory to him who loved us and freed us by shedding his blood for us. And all glory to him whom the grave could not hold, but who rose again on the third day, conquering death, redeeming sin, and giving life to those who were once dead, but now can be alive forever and ever and ever. service. It's so good to see you here this morning. So glad you've chosen to join us for Resurrection Sunday, either here in person. We see a full house here. Those online, we welcome you all. And we are here to remember and celebrate the most consequential day in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You know, most people will agree that Jesus was an amazing guy. Um, He did a lot of amazing things. But, you know, a lot of other people in history have also drawn big crowds. They've been a great role model. They claim to speak for God. They rocked the boat against the establishment, both political and religious. They alienated the powers that be politically or religious. They were the victim of a kangaroo court. And they were tortured and died a horrible death. A lot of people could say that we could say that about their lives. But of all those people, Jesus was the only one to validate everything that he ever said and did by predicting that he would rise from the dead and then he actually pulled it off. Now I know that some have doubted the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, but for me the most compelling thing is that the powers that be that wanted him dead and wanted him to stay dead had complete control over his body. And yet, the, and the only thing they had to do to quell these rumors that were spreading like wildfire that Jesus is resurrection, all they had to do was produce the body, and that would have been the end of that. But they could only do that if he was still dead. So let's celebrate the resurrection this morning. You know, we say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me read to you from the book of Matthew the story of this account. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. And the angel spoke to the women, Don't you be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said it would happen. Come see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So here this morning, we are going to celebrate this fact of history. We're going to sing some songs, some traditional songs, and some new songs that lead us into this great celebration of this most consequential day in history. So please, let's stand together and sing.
seated. But it's great to be here with you on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrate and we rejoice in the fact that death and the grave could not hold Jesus. We to celebrate that fact together this morning. It's great to be gathered here with all of you. If you're Visiting your new, my name is Tim, I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us to celebrate this morning. If you are new or you are interested in knowing more about the church, or there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there should be a, a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out, you can drop it in the boxes that are mounted to the back wall on your way out. That's where you can place any tithes and offerings you want to give this morning if you want to support what we're doing here at the church. If you're visiting, you're new, like, please know that we don't expect your, your gifts or your tithes this morning, but if you want to give, that's the place to do that. A couple of things to draw to your attention. The following the service this morning, we will head downstairs and we will have a brunch together. We invite you to join us for that. It's just a way to, another way to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. A few more announcements in your bulletin that I will let you read on your own. But this morning, again, we just want to really be all about praising and thanking God for what He's done for us in Jesus. So, with that in mind, would you join me as we pray and thank our Father? Father God, we are so thankful for this chance to gather together to celebrate the truly remarkable, amazing, mind-boggling fact that you raised your son from the dead. That death could not hold him. Because of his sinless life, Death had no power over him until you raised him from the dead. God, we, we know that that's so central and important and vital to our faith, and yet it's so easy to take for granted. So we thank you for this chance today, right now, to come together to remember and to reflect and to celebrate that Jesus is alive. So as we enter this time now of continuing to sing and to praise you, would our heart and our minds be transfixed by that truth? That Jesus is alive, and because Jesus is alive, our eternity is secure. That Jesus will defeat 
all death one day. And we will have eternal life if we have trusted in Him. Yeah, will we praise You now? Would we celebrate? Would we rejoice? And would we glorify You for all that You've done for us in Jesus? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable member of the council who had not consented to this deed, obtained permission from Pontius Pilate to lay Jesus' body in a tomb before the Sabbath began at sundown. I a tomb for the teacher. I would like to take his body. You can take it. Forgive us. We are following the body of our Lord. All are welcome. But hurry. The Sabbath is approaching. Come. Come. They went back home prepared the spices for the body. On the Sabbath day, they rested as commanded by the law. Very early on Sunday morning, they came to the tomb, carrying the spices they had prepared. Angels shining like the sun. 
and said to us, Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's true. Believe us. Believe us. We saw them. Go and see for yourself. The tomb was empty. Our Lord was gone. Peter, you must believe us. Lord, let's stand together and we'll continue our celebration and our worship of Him. See what a morning, gloriously bright with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. is risen. See God's salvation plan wrought in love, born in pain, paid in sacrifice. Fulfilled in Christ the man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. See Mary weeping, as in sorrow she turns from the empty tomb, hears a voice speaking, calling her name. It's the Master, the Lord, raised to life again. The voice that spans the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us. Sound till he appears, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. One with the Father, ancient of days, through the Spirit who clothes faith with certainty. Honor and blessing, glory and praise to the King with power and authority, and we are raised with him, death is dead, love is one, Christ has conquered, and we shall reign with him, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. has conquered, and we shall reign with him, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. 
great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down in glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven, the King of kings called. Set me free, hallelujah. 
sing those words, that you are not just our hope, but you are our living hope, that you are alive because what we celebrate on Easter, that you have won victory over Satan, sin, and death, that we rejoice that Jesus is alive, and because he is alive, we have hope. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in in 2003, there were 300,000 books published in the United States, which sounds like a lot. But then in 2010, there were 3 million books published in the United States. So in, in those seven years, that's a tenfold increase from 300,000 to 3 million in only seven years. Which raises the question, like, why? Like, what would explain that kind of massive growth in the number of books that are published over a seven-year period? A number of important events happened in that seven-year window. First, on November 19th, 2007, Amazon released the first Kindle e-reader. And then, less than two years later, they, Amazon, in March of 2009, released Kindle apps that let you read Kindle e-books on your tablet or on your phone. And then just a few more months later, in May 2009, Amazon really shook things up when they launched Amazon Publishing, which made it far easier for aspiring authors to self-publish their books. It's far easier than ever before to just publish your books for yourself. Importantly, Amazon Publishing allowed authors to publish their books directly and only to Kindle, thus saving them the large overhead cost of printing books. So suddenly, everyone, right, everyone who had the manuscript and a dream of being a published author could make their own dreams come true by self-publishing to Kindle for relatively little expense. So there's a massive explosion in the number of books that were published. In fact, in both 2003 and 2010, the major traditional publishers published the same number of books, about 300,000 each year. The huge increase in the number of books published was accounted for solely by the increase in self-publishing made possible by Kindle and e-books. There's just been, since that time, a huge growth in the popularity of e-books over the last 15 years. E-book sales have increased by about 15% every year since 2010. 
And it kind of makes sense. Like, e-books are incredibly convenient. You can carry around hundreds of books in something smaller than a paperback. Or now with the app, you can carry around hundreds of books like on your phone that you're going to carry around anyway. You can adjust the font size. If your, your eyes aren't what they used to be, you can still read. You can read in the dark without any external light source. They're convenient, but not only are they, not only are they convenient, they also are cost-effective. Right? Like bestsellers often cost $10 compared to $20 plus for hardcover bestsellers. You can often get classics that are in the public domain for nearly free on an ebook format. They're also environmentally friendly, right? There's no longer thousands and thousands of pages of paper being consumed by your love of books. So the adventures of ebooks seem obvious. Like, this is my Kindle. Like, I, I love it. I've had one version of Kindle or another since Christmas 2008. I had like the very first model. And as someone who loves technology and reading, I'm kind of smack in the center of the target demographic for the Kindle. And yet, if you walk into my office, you'll see my bookshelf nearly full of physical books. I have books everywhere in my office. Like Some of them I also have on my Kindle. Like I have two copies. You might be inclined to ask, why? If ebooks are so great, why have physical books at all? Why not just get them all on Kindle? But there's just something about physical books. And I'm, I'm hardly alone in feeling that way. Right? Like, despite all the advantages of ebooks that I just talked about, even with their convenience and their customizability and their cost effectiveness and their environmental friendliness, Ebook sales still only account for 7.5% of all book sales by revenue. 44% of Americans purchased at least one physical book last year, while only 22% purchased at least one ebook. Nearly half of Americans who say they read frequently only read physical books, while only 15% only read ebooks. And the question is, why? Like, with all those advantages, why are the physical books still so much more popular? And the psychologist, Dr. Elena Turoni, puts it this way. She says, people prefer to read physical books because they offer something more tangible and grounded. There's something that can feel more permanent about real books over digital formats. And for me, like, that's certainly... Resonate. That's certainly how I feel. Like there are books that I read in seminary some ten years ago, where if you ask me the right question, I can like I don't know the page number, but if I find the page, I know what spot on that page that answer is because I just remember it being there. It's locked in place. And like we just have this kind of seeming preference for physical books over the nebulous nature of ebooks. And that's true, not just a book, right? Like, in 2020, as online music streaming services became more and more ubiquitous, the sale of vinyl records saw this massive boom. In 2020, record sales more than doubled from 2019. 
as digital technology kind of try to invade every area of our lives, there seems to be some desire among people to say, like, actually, there's something I value in the physical and the tangible over against the purely digital. There's this acknowledgement that the physical and the tangible is somehow superior to the nebulous and to the intangible. Which makes it strange and maybe a little confusing that we're so quick to dismiss the value of the physical and the tangible when it comes to eternity. Somehow, the, the common cultural understanding of what eternal bliss and paradise and eternal life looks like has become this entirely ethereal, spiritual, intangible existence. See what I mean? Just look at the first few images that pop up when you do a Google Images search for eternal life. So you search eternal life, go to images, the first result you get is this. And the second you get is this. And third is this. And fourth is this. And finally fifth is this. Right? Which are the first five results you get when you search eternal life in Google Images. And I don't know about you, but none of those seem like a particularly pleasant place to be if I have a physical and tangible body. If I've learned anything like from flying on airplanes, it's that clouds don't do a great job supporting tangible physical objects. But according to kind of the common cultural understanding of heaven, we don't need to worry about that because we won't be physical bodies. There's a common perception of heaven. There'll be these disembodied spirits living in this ethereal, nebulous home in the clouds. In a 2005 survey, they surveyed people, the question asked about the afterlife and people's beliefs about the afterlife. 78% of people who believed in an afterlife believed that it only existed in a spiritual sense. Only 8% of people who believe in afterlife believe that it would exist in a physical sense. But hear me. To believe that, to believe that eternity is only about the spiritual and the intangible, is to miss one of the fundamental points of Easter. It matters. It is important and significant that Jesus rose with a physical and a tangible body, a body that ate and was touched by his disciples. That matters. It's important. And to miss that point is to miss one of the central points of significance about Easter. But what's amazing is that people who call themselves Christians have been missing that point for a long time, almost since the very beginning. A while back, you may recall, Dan Brown became quite famous for his book, The Da Vinci Code. And the central idea of that book is that a a group of early Christians called the Gnostics, well, they were the ones who were actually right about a lot of stuff, but that the early church rulers silenced them. And those claims made in that book, The Da Vinci Code, caused Christians to to call that book dangerous and to condemn it and to, to boycott it. 
And Gnosticism is indeed heretical. Like it goes against the plain teaching of the Bible. But the irony is that many of the people who have been slamming the Da Vinci Code and slamming Gnosticism had subtly embraced the form of Gnosticism long before that book came out. The Gnosticism was one of the like, early church heresies the church faced. But its central claim is that the, the physical body is weak and it is evil. Right? But the spirit is good and it is pure and just and right. And so therefore, when the Bible speaks of Jesus' resurrection, the Gnostic claim that it's only his spirit that was resurrected, not his body. And therefore, for believers, like, their eternal life will be purely spiritual. Which sounds a lot like what many of those people who were slamming the Da Vinci Code believe. Right? That eternity is just a spiritual, intangible thing. But this misunderstanding of the, the nature of eternity goes back even further than the Gnostics. It goes back to the Bible times itself and some of the very first believers. In fact, we see Paul correcting this misunderstanding in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. to me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before we look at that passage, let me just quickly remind you of how the book of 1 Corinthians starts. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important because it tells us that Paul is writing this letter to Christians, to believers, right? to what he calls the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and to those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So that's the audience for this book. People who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which makes it shocking that some of them seem to be missing this fundamental point. So to see what I mean, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is what we read, starting in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, right, which it obviously has been, like what they've been preaching, that Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, if that's been preached, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These believers that Paul is writing to are claiming that when someone dies, their physical body stays dead forever. There is no resurrection of their physical bodies. These these believers are probably still clinging to the common belief in the Roman world that after death, the soul will continue because the soul is immortal, but but the body would perish permanently. Which is not much different than kind of the prevailing beliefs of the world today. But Paul says, importantly, that those beliefs don't work in light of the resurrection. He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even not even Christ has been raised. Paul is saying, like, resurrection is an all-or-nothing deal. Either everyone, for all time, is ultimately resurrected, brought back to life in physical, tangible bodies, 
or no one, not even Christ, has been resurrected. To to deny the resurrection of the dead, to deny that we will be raised from the dead, is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And so in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So just follow the logic Paul lays out. If Christ is not raised, then, then Christian faith, all of it, is useless. And if the dead, all the dead, are not raised, then, then Christ is not raised. Therefore, if you put those together, then if there is no physical, tangible resurrection for us, for our bodies, after we die, then our faith is useless. But that's not all. Verse 15, he says, More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul's argument, so we're clear, right? That, that if there is not a physical resurrection for all people, then believing in Jesus is useless. And people who preach the resurrection of Jesus are heretics. So just to make sure he's being abundantly clear, in the next few verses, Paul repeats his argument. He says in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without a belief that one day the dead will be raised, there is no basis for hope for those who have died trusting in Christ. If we don't believe in the physical resurrection of our bodies, we are, Paul says, to be pitied. And yet those surveys I mentioned earlier tell us that most people, even those who claim to be Christians, don't believe in a physical resurrection of the dead. And like, look, I understand why. Like, it's weird and it's strange to think about the dead physically rising. Right? Like it, it sounds like more like something out of a zombie movie than something out of the Bible. And it raises all kinds of questions that the Bible doesn't give us answers to about how it all works. But if we're going to take the Bible seriously as the revealed Word of God, and if we're going to understand the full significance of Easter and why we celebrate Easter, then we need to embrace and rejoice in the fact that one day our physical bodies will be raised, renewed, and perfected. Just listen to Paul rejoice in the fact. He says in verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. They're a promise that more of the same is to come. Christ's resurrection on that first Easter was not a one-off deal. It was the first fruit, the promise that more of the same will be experienced one day by the rest of us. We will all, like Christ, one day be raised. 
Continuing in verse 21, Paul says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is reigning now. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He is reigning. And he's in the process of putting all his enemies in submission to him under his feet. And his resurrection is a sign that he is now actively reigning. Paul continues in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he had done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Right now, Christ is reigning. He is destroying his enemies. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it will one day be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, all who have died will rise because death will no longer have any power or hold on them. Death will be defeated. Death will be destroyed. That's part of the significance of the resurrection. And so, like, in light of that whole passage, here's what I hope, like, you walk away with this morning, right? Like, most of us know the basics of the Easter story well. Like, we can recite the events. We've heard it all our lives, in many cases, probably, right? Some women went to the tomb, or they saw that the grave was empty, and so they see this man who they first think is a gardener, where Jesus is, and it turns out that man is Jesus himself, raised from the dead, and he sends these women to go tell the disciples about his resurrection. And the disciples don't believe him at first, but then like impulsive Peter takes off running. He discovers that it's true that Jesus really has been raised. Like, we know the story. But sometimes I feel that like, in focusing on the events of the story, we miss the full significance of the story. We miss the full scope of why the resurrection actually matters. That's why passages like this one in 1 Corinthians are so important. It tells us not what happened on that first Easter, but why it matters. If I could boil Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 down to one sentence, it would be this. That the resurrection is the guarantee of our own tangible eternity. The resurrection is the promise that our death does not mark the end of our physical existence. You might recall there's a a scene in the movie The Lion King where Simba Simba, encounters Rafiki and Rafiki tells him that his father, Simba tells Rafiki that his father Mufasa has died. But then Rafiki replies that actually Mufasa is alive and to prove it, he leads Simba on this wild chase and eventually, Simba sees an image of Mufasa in the cloud talking to him. Like, it looks like this. 
Right? Those Simba see Mufasa in the clouds and talk to him briefly. Or like similarly, at the end of Star Wars, or the Return of the Jedi, like Luke sees these intangible force ghosts of his father, Anakin, and of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and of Yoda. Like, like he sees that image and these intangible beings. We're supposed to take that as a sign that even though these characters died in the movies... They're actually alive in some other realm or dimension, and so their eternity is secure, and everything is all good. And like, I fear that our thinking about life after death, and Christians, is not much different than these pictures of what life after death is life. That when we go to heaven, we go as some like digital projections of ourselves, and we can watch over loved ones who are still on earth. Like, and we see that, like that idea, our, our great hope. But that picture of eternity doesn't match the Bible's description of our, our hope or of our eternal existence. Our hope, as Paul makes abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 15, like our hope is rooted in a physical resurrection of the dead which results in us living forever as physical, tangible beings, in a tangible and physical new earth. And again, like, I know it's weird to think about. And I know it's strange, especially if you're like, familiar with a common cultural understanding of what heaven and eternity are like. But it's actually amazing how often... The Bible talked about this resurrection of the dead when you start to look for it. I'm going to just give you a few examples. In John 5, 28-29, Jesus himself says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That's Jesus himself. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't pick and choose what things he says that you're going to believe in. Jesus says that. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Or in Acts 24 and 25, Paul is speaking. He's defending himself before the governor of Felix. And he says this, that... I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. So what is that hope? Like what is Paul's great hope that he has? Right, that he'll go to heaven someday after he dies? No. He says that hope is that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Right? Paul's great hope is that there will be a resurrection. And the reason he can be confident in that hope is that he has seen the resurrected Jesus. And he knows that Jesus, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruit of that resurrection. Jesus is the guarantee that more resurrections are coming. N.T. Wright has written this book called Surprised by Hope. That book is all about him exploring the significance of the resurrection. If you're familiar with N.T. Wright, this is not me endorsing everything he says. He says some stuff I don't agree with. But like, this book, Surprise by Hope, is like, an incredibly helpful book. If you leave here today finding yourself wanting to learn more about what I'm saying, like, I would commend this book, Surprise by Hope, to you. 
I'd lend it to you, but I only have it on Kindle. <laughs> Which is, I suppose, another reason physical books are superior to e-books. You can lend them far easier. Anyway, in the pride of my hope, Wright sums up this whole idea really well when he writes this. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. I think that last line about the Lord's Prayer is so important. Like, just think about the Lord's Prayer for a second. Like, what does it say? That your kingdom come. Right? The prayer for God's kingdom to come down to earth. It continues, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is not a prayer, as Wright says, for us to be snatched away from earth to heaven. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for earth to be colonized with the life of heaven. And the resurrection that we celebrate at Easter, it's the beginning of God's project to answer that prayer with a yes. The resurrection is the sign that earth really one day will be colonized with the life of heaven. In Revelation 21, we get this beautiful picture of what that colonization of earth with the life of heaven will look like. Starting in verse 2 of Revelation 21, we read this. John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The great picture there in Revelation 21 is of heaven coming down to earth, of God making all things new, making all things perfect. Not of earth being permanently destroyed while believers go off to live as disembodied spirits in heaven. This is the hope that Easter promises. This is why Easter matters. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Even though our life on this earth may one day end in death, even though our life now on earth may be marked by pain and suffering and mourning and sin, the resurrected Jesus is at work now. He's reigning. He's putting His enemies He's putting the powers of Satan and sin and death in subjugation under him. His resurrection on that first Easter is the guarantee, the promise that he ultimately will destroy death. And our bodies will be raised to life. Not just our soul, but our bodies. For those who have trusted and believed in Jesus... That life will be in a 
a new life and a new physical, tangible earth with a new creation, a new paradise like the Garden of Eden. And in that place, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Like as we read earlier in the book of John, Jesus said in John, when the dead are raised, those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So maybe you hear that and you think, like, well, that's bad news for me. I've, I've done things that are evil. But here's the thing. We all have. In God's eyes, all sin is evil. All sin is wicked. And we've all sinned. That's why the cross is so important. On the cross, Jesus takes our evil deeds, our sins, and He takes them on Himself. He pays for them on the cross, and He, in exchange, gives us His righteous life. So that when we are raised, we can rise to a, a glorious, eternal life. We can rise to not be condemned. So if you've, you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never asked for forgiveness for your sins. You never asked for His righteous life to be applied to you. I just invite you to do that this morning. So I invite you to trust in Jesus that the great hope of Easter is good news for you. By believing in Jesus, then you have this eternal hope that one day you will live in the new heavens and the new earth with glorified, perfected body. But that only applies to those who have trusted in Jesus. So I'd invite you, if you never have, to trust in Jesus. But Easter is, is more right, than just an invitation to believe in Jesus and then, like, hold on. Like, so it's like, believe in Jesus and then hold on through all the pain and suffering of this life until we reach glory. Easter promises us more than that. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul said everything he has to say about the resurrection, he concludes his resurrection thoughts by saying this. Verse 56-58. through 58, He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus gives us victory over sin and death. And so we should give thanks to God. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop at giving thanks. He says even more. He says, therefore, in light of everything he said about the resurrection, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know, in light of the resurrection, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We work unto God because this tangible, physical life is not just a temporary inconvenience that we endure until we move on to the spiritual bliss of heaven. We work now because our labor on this earth will be renewed on the new earth in all eternity. 
N.T. Wright once again sums this up well. He says it better than I could. I'm going to close with his words. He writes this. When the final resurrection occurs, at the centerpiece of God's new creation, we will discover that everything done in the present world, in the power of Jesus' own resurrection, will be celebrated and included and appropriately transformed. Every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit, every work of true creativity, doing justice, making peace, healing families, resisting temptation, seeking and winning true freedom, they're all an earthly event in a long history of things that point to Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation. And those acts, they act as signposts of hope, pointing back to the first resurrection and on to the second. As we, we go this morning, as we leave here, as we live in light of Easter, we should go doing two things. One, rejoicing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then second, knowing that our work acts as a signpost of hope that points to the resurrection of Jesus until we go doing the work that God has called us to do. I'm going to give us a chance to, to do that first thing, to rejoice one more time. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing one more song and then I will come and dismiss us. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus is the first fruits that point us forward to the fact that when this life on this earth ends, it is not the end of us, but that you will one day raise us again. And that if we've trusted in you, we have the confident hope that we will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with you in glory living the lives you made us to live and worshiping you. So God, would we praise you for that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's praise him one more time in song. Yes, let's respond to this great message that we've heard by standing and singing one closing song. Yeah.
couple quick notes about kind of flow this morning. Again, we invite you to join us for brunch downstairs after the service. We're going to ask you to, like, as you head down, go down, find a seat first. Once we're down there, I'll pray for us. I'll give us a few instructions for getting food, and then we will proceed. So I'd invite you, if you're going to stay with us, go down, find a seat relatively quickly, um, and we'll get going from there. So thank you for joining us this morning as we celebrate the life of Jesus. And we pray that you would go rejoicing in his resurrection and looking forward to the future hope that he promises us through his resurrection. You are dismissed. Triumph, and we conquer by his mighty end.